0: hello morning uh, let's uh, let's begin um thanks for having me back it's nice to be here uh, Steve I'm oh, sorry Colin Colin uh, asked me to do this and I said yes and he gave I said what do you want me to talk about and he gave me a topic and I'm not sure this is what he thought I would do but uh, I'm going to talk initially about whiskey but not not Scottish whiskey I'm sorry um, I was a latecomer to, uh, to whiskey in life, and uh, I've learned to love it quite a lot. Now, can I have the next slide real quick? I'm actually gonna talk specifically about one particular kind of whiskey, uh, the delicious bourbon whiskey. Are we are Any fans of bourbon whiskey in the audience? I hope so. What? <laughs> well, don't boo. Come on now. Um, <laughs> it's really, who boos whiskey? Come on. I'm sorry there's no tasting part here. Um, I kind of was, came into kind of good whiskey first and kind of came to bourbon later. And I came to bourbon uh, probably mostly through cocktails because cocktails are an increasingly interesting part of, of, of life for me. I'm kind of really into the whole balance and, and putting things together in an interesting way. And um, that was my introduction to bourbon. And can I have the next slide real quick? Bourbon's history, it kind of comes up with cocktails in many ways. On the left we have uh, an old fashioned, One of the great cocktails of this world. If you haven't drunk an Old Fashioned, go and drink an Old Fashioned. And if you can have the next slide, the Old Fashioned pretty much is the very defi- Oh, that's nice. The very definition of a cocktail. Someone wrote to a magazine in 1806 and said, how would you define, uh, what is a cocktail? And and this was the response, Uh, which, you know, if you look at an Old Fashioned, which is pretty much bourbon, sugar, water, and bitters, it's a cocktail, good Old Fashioned. Uh, Next slide, please. The other two uh, kind of classic cocktails here, we have the, uh, the whiskey sour at the top and uh, the julep below it, both particularly interesting and delicious things. But really, I wanna talk more about bourbon. We're going to go into what bourbon is. And I don't believe any presentation is complete without bullet points. So if I could have the next slide, we should talk about what bourbon really is. Uh, can I have the next slide, please? No, back one. No, that's forward again, but we go back. Come on, back, back one more. There we go, excellent news. This is what bourbon is, because it's interesting, you kind of need your definitions out there. Bourbon, I used to think it was a little bit different to what it actually is. All that defines bourbon is predominantly, must be produced in the US. Nowhere else can make bourbon, gotta be made in the US. Secondly, and this is the kind of key thing, the mash that you're gonna ferment to make delicious alcohol must be at least 51% corn. You could use uh, rye predominantly, but then you would get rye whiskey. But bourbon is corn or maize. And then the other interesting bit is it must be aged in new but charred oak barrels. Uh, The charring, it kind of existed before the Americans. There's some claim that some, uh, I think a priest or certainly a clergyman uh, invented the charring of the oak thing, but actually it was going on in Scotland way before this. And the charring's interesting because it gives you color uh, as well as new flavor compounds developing as part of the process. And so, I began to dig into bourbon a little bit more. Uh, and I can have the next slide now. Is anyone, hopefully some of you have seen this slide. This is probably the most depressing slide in bourbon. Uh, so, I, I kind of got into it, began to explore all the different makers of bourbon. It was kind of delicious. Uh, and then you see, really, all of the different bourbons are owned by like seven different companies. It's a, it's a beautiful American thing to me. Like it's it's a wonderful corporate thing where you have like Jim Beam being owned by the same people that make some really nice whiskies. I think you know, Woodford Reserve is the same people as make uh, yeah Jack Daniels. Now Woodford Des- Reserve, pretty good. Jack Daniels, effective at what it does, I suppose. That's that's its uh, ringing endorsement for that as a drink. But um, my interest in bourbon went back a little bit further. I was like, well, why is it called bourbon? So, there's two competing theories as to why it's called bourbon. Um, the first one's the kind of obvious one. If I have the next slide. There we go. Here we go. This is Kentucky, uh, where a great deal of whiskey is made, and it doesn't have to be made in Kentucky, bourbon. Uh, and the little red part there is Bourbon County, Kentucky. Uh, it, two pointless facts. One, there is no bourbon or any whiskey made in Bourbon County, none at all. And two, there are currently more barrels of bourbon aging in Kentucky than there are people. And there are 4.4 million people. So there's quite a lot of whiskey in this particular county. And um, Bourbon County is pretty small. And it used to be part of a bigger region of Kentucky called Old Bourbon, Uh, And what the the story goes, or how the story goes, is that people were making whiskey from the corn there, it's a very agricultural part of the world. Uh, Next slide. And they would put old bourbon on the barrels, and people began to know it as old bourbon whiskey. Makes sense, pretty obvious, seems seems quite clear. There's some strong disagreement about this theory though. Some people say this doesn't add up. There's another theory entirely, and that comes from uh, New Orleans, or New Orleans if you're gonna do that, but I'm not. Uh, Now, has anyone been to New Orleans? There's a wonderful and terrifying place. One particular street in New Orleans. New Orleans has 24 hour drinking and they make very good use of it. And um, the story goes that there were two French brothers and they were trying to make a whiskey that was more approachable to the sort of local French cognac drinkers in the region. And so they began to sort of make a style of whiskey and they would sell it uh, on a place called Bourbon Street. I have the next, next slide. Now, Bourbon Street now is, is just horrifying. There are, there are people drinking just giant things that are basically uh, Everclear, which you can buy in the US. It's basically just pure alcohol, it's like 90% alcohol, and Gatorade, and uh, you just see people walking around with that just getting wasted, it's, it's not good. But um, they would sell their whiskey, apparently on Bourbon Street, and it became known as Bourbon Street Whiskey, and ultimately, therefore, Bourbon Whiskey. So it seemed quite alien and quite different there, are, uh, con- Conveniently for me, it doesn't matter which one's true. So the name Bourbon Street and Bourbon County or Old Bourbon County come from the same thing. Uh, Old Bourbon County was named uh, by the Americans, by the, the, those of Kentucky, as a thank you because the French, very kindly, had helped during the American Revolutionary War. They'd assisted uh, beating the British, and uh, they thanked them by naming this part of the world Old Bourbon. Uh, the capital of the region is Paris. You know what I mean? there's a strong kind of French name influence. And again, down in New Orleans, huge French population, many of the streets were named for uh, things to do with France. And, and what does Bourbon have to do with it? Well, the pronunciation changes slightly. If We go to the next slide. It's named after this, which is the Royal House of Bourbon. Uh, This is a a sort of French royal house, a French royal family, um, which has stretched for centuries. Uh, They've had huge amounts of power in different countries. Uh, If you go to the next slide, some classic, or some great members of the the Bourbon family. You've got like Louis XIV, the Sun King. And the Bourbon family goes back before him, like 1500s is really where they took uh, control of France and and Navarre. So you have Louis XIV, Louis XV, it goes on and on. Today, we still have monarchs who are a part of the House of Bourbon. So on the top right, we have uh, Juan Carlos I, he is the King of Spain. Again, he is a member of the House of Bourbon. And below this, there is the Grand Duke Henri from Luxembourg. He is also a member of the House of Bourbon. It's this massive dynasty of power in Europe that went on and on, and they had a little blip during the old French Revolution, but uh, they kind of came back afterwards, and they've ruled for hundreds and hundreds of years. They're a huge and important part of of, uh, of France. So, where next? Well, uh, let's go back before the House of Bourbon. If I could have my next slide. This guy's pretty cool. It is, look at that. So this is uh, Don Pedro Mascarenhas, and uh, he's Portuguese, and he's an explorer. And uh, it's 1508, and he is leading some ships around the world, and it's a period of time when people are pretty interested in in finding new places to claim as their own. And uh, if I go the next slide, they come across an island, it's not really near anywhere, and we suspect they discovered it on the 9th of May, because the 9th of May is is the saints' day of Santa Apollonia, so they most likely named the island after the Saints' Day, and as islands go, it's pretty small, it's kind of, if you were looking for somewhere real life to film Lost, that was actually a creepy, crazy island full of jungle and, and mountains and all that sort of stuff, this would do really pretty well. But it's, uh, so they picked it up and they claimed it in 1508, Actually, the French would later uh, claim it. They did so in a kind of bizarre way. The French colonized it by leaving 12 mutineers there as a sort of prison. They'd been a bit naughty in Madagascar, so they just sort of dumped them way away on this island, and and that's how apparently the French claim uh, claim islands. So we've got this far in the talk, and you're probably thinking at some point I should probably talk about coffee. Uh, So, staying on a vaguely Portuguese theme, let's have the next uh, slide. Let's talk about Brazil. Brazil grows a lot of coffee. In fact, Brazil right now grows about a third of the world's coffee. Uh, this is a—it's kind of a good and a bad thing. They didn't always grow about a third of the world's coffee. If I see the next slide, they actually grew quite a lot more in the past. So what you've got here is a historic breakdown of how much coffee Brazil used to grow. It's percentage, remember, it's not total. They grow more now than they ever have, and uh, they're what are they producing now? About 50 million bags of coffee a year right now. That's the sort of target they're suspected for this year. And because Brazil produces so much, well, Brazil's kind of a pain. Because Brazil causes problems. Brazil is the root cause of a great deal of the fluctuation that goes on in the price for coffee. Uh, if you have a little look at the next slide, and this is a, this is a fair trade slide, but any that there's a peak, it's Brazil's fault. Anytime there's a big trough, it's Brazil's fault. If there's a frost, prices go up. If there's an overproduction, prices go down. And we saw Brazil massively overproduce last year. We saw the sea market prices tumble down to just about a dollar a pound, which is incredibly low. I'm not sure if anyone's watching the news at the moment, but um, Brazil is in the middle of a very bad drought, and as such, in the last, I think, couple of weeks, the sea has shot up like 20 cents because everyone's getting nervous now that Brazil might underproduce on what it's supposed to produce this year. And you you know, we had this situation where coffee prices got very high a few years ago, and then Brazil really ramped up production and then flooded the market with coffee, which depressed the price. And then the Brazilian farmers turned around to the government and were like, hey, We've caused ourselves a problem. Why aren't you helping us out? Why aren't you giving us money to finance our coffee so we can withhold it from the market to try and drive prices back up? And we're in a slightly insane situation. Um, but going back in, into history, because i want on a history kick today. How did coffee get to Brazil? There's a, there's a lovely story, I have the next slide, that's, that's kind of uh, only interesting because it's told by the guy who's the center of it. Uh, you may have heard the story of Gabriel de Decler, He's a Frenchman. It's 1723, and he has written his own account of bringing coffee to the New World. Uh, he has these plants on this ship, and he gives it his own water rations, and he tends it, and he looks after it from saboteurs on board. And he he finally, in 1723, I think, gets it to Martinique, or uh, well, he gets it across the Atlantic. It's very exciting, and, and well done him. Uh, this would be enormously important if coffee hadn't already been in South America for some years beforehand. There's reports, I mean, he's 1723. There's some reports of, of coffee being in uh, Suriname in 1715. It's certainly in French Guiana by 1718. He's kind of a latecomer here, but he tells a good story, so he is well-remembered. Uh, another good storyteller, if I go to the next slide, is the man credited with bringing coffee to Brazil. This is Francesco de, Meo, de Melo Palheta. I'm sure someone in Brazil is very angry with my pronunciation. Uh, he, I'm sure, is the one who tells this story. And uh, he, uh, 1727, he goes on a diplomatic mission to French Guiana. And as is important in any diplomatic mission, he uh, has a torrid affair with the wife of the governor he's visiting. Um, and because he's telling the story, he is so virile and wonderful and just enchanting that she's, she's quite taken with him and as he leaves she presents him with a bouquet of flowers and hidden in the bouquet of the coffee seeds that he brings back to Brazil and he plants in the northern region. It's a lovely story which I'm sure he enjoyed making up very much but that's the, uh, that's the credited introduction of coffee into Brazil. What was always confusing to me, if I can have the next slide, is that he was from the, the region in the north called Para. See right up at the top there? The coffee industry when it does kick off and you know, kicks off in a very big way, does so way down in the south uh, where you can see a lot of coffee clustered there. Somehow it sort of magically floated thousands of miles across the country, not really picking up any farms on the way and end up down there. Now Brazil, it has a a kind of a long history with varieties of coffee. If I have the next slide. There are coffee varieties that have come out of Brazil that we're all pretty familiar with. We have uh, Mundo Novo, we have uh, Coutura, Catuai, all of these varieties that have uh, been developed or discovered in Brazil. And then they were sort of spread into other countries. Coutura you see in places like Colombia a great deal, uh, Catuai again all over the place. But in 1860 to 1870, Brazil actually imports a different variety of coffee. Now this uh, variety actually had been brought to the island of Santa Apollonia. Have the next slide, let's go back there. Now it's interesting because there's a couple of stories of how it got there, it's around about 1717, 1718. Probably the seeds were purchased from the Dutch East India Company. And what's interesting is that these were brought from Yemen, where coffee was initially cultivated. And Yemen had the monopoly on coffee production for a very long time. And the coffees of Yemen were brought initially from Ethiopia, and the one that got out first, and that sort of spread to South America, and actually throughout around to Indonesia, uh, we know as Typica, the variety Typica, and that uh, there's many varieties that have sort of tumbled down from Typica that have developed from Tipica. But this is a different one. So it's it was similar in many ways, but I mean, we don't know too much about the genetics. It was 1717. 17. No one's hugely interested in, in the genetic makeup of plants at this point. But they the French get hold of some seeds, they plant it on this island. Some say that there is some adaptation on the island, and then... Uh, they bring that new coffee plant and they bring it to Brazil and it ultimately spreads from there. And uh, you're probably wondering why you've never heard of Santa Apollonia. Well, when the French got hold of it, they changed its name. Um, they uh, very, you very know, filial and pious and, and patriotic. If I have the next slide, they also named it after the House of Bourbon. This is the Island of Bourbon. So uh, essentially, When you say to someone, hey, this coffee, it's a Bourbon variety, and they're like, ha, 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 like bourbon. Well, yes, exactly like bourbon. They're named after exactly the same thing, uh, which I think is kind of cool. I think it's kind of fun. So both things named after exactly the same royal family of France, not something we strongly associate with coffee, but I think interesting nonetheless. So Colin asked that I talk about uh, Bourbon. I hope he's happy with what he got. Um, So, (laughs) The, uh, the coffee doesn't just spread to Brazil. Uh, the coffee, confusingly, spreads back to Africa. If I have the next slide. Now it spreads initially in, uh, it's spread by French missionaries. And for some reason, coffee is generally spread to a lot of countries by missionaries, by Jesuits, by all sorts. It seems to be a big deal to, for, for those spreading religion apparently to spread coffee, but they by and large don't spread it as a as anything other than a sort of novelty it, it appears in variety gardens it appears as, as something that people sort of have around but no one's really growing as a crop uh, next slide if i could so it, it, it comes back and it's initially uh, introduced into east africa now um, it appears Around about 1897 of the first reports of of this Bourbon variety being reintroduced to Africa. And if you look at the map, it is kind of insane that the coffee had come from Yemen, skipped its way around Africa, down just in the corner near Madagascar. It hangs out there for a little while and then comes back into Africa. Now, uh, this is a map of how Africa looked in 1914. Um... And as you can see, Ethiopia stands alone. It stands independent, which is good. And then a great deal of the rest of Africa, especially East Africa, is colonized. Uh, now, the interesting bits are, are where German uh, Germany has its colonies. Because after the First World War, Germany has its colonies taken away from it. And they are reappropriated uh, to two different colonial powers. The British, we get uh, Tanzania. And then what was Rwanda-Urundi? Uh, goes to Belgium, and they get that now uh, in terms of uh, colonial guilt, the british are pretty uh, pretty healthy quantities of colonial guilt going on uh, we've somehow let the Belgians get away with it uh, because they were they were pretty terrible uh, now as a warning. Generally, the point of many talks and presentations is that you you take people on a journey and you you really lift them up at the end and you make them feel very good. And I haven't quite worked out how to do that because we kind of need to talk about this. If I can have the the next slide, if we take uh, Rwanda and Burundi, which hopefully you can oh good you can indeed see the Belgians get hold in 1919, uh, and they really they really look to uh, to turn these co- these colonies into just profitable enterprises, and as such, they uh, they make coffee growing mandatory. In fact, in, in Rwanda, you must uh, farmers had to uh, give a portion of their land up to coffee production. In Burundi, farmers had to produce a certain number of trees. There was physical punishment if you did not mulch your trees correctly. Uh, but the goal here for Belgium was that that these countries produce a lot of coffee. It'd be worth very little. Uh, So that it can go to Belgium and and that works quite well. It's a good colonial sort of manufacturing plant for them to get lots of cheap coffee bearing in mind that pre- pre Pre-genocide Rwanda doesn't have a wet mill There's no washing stations there. Granted now there are hundreds, but back then it was just produced dirty dirty cheap nasty coffee Send it all to Belgium. That was the goal Um, and you know how these colonies were managed is, is not not a very happy story. The uh, the Germans when they were in Rwanda uh, became obsessed with race to some extent, and they believed, for whatever reason, that the uh, the ethnic Tutsis were superior to the Hutus. And uh, despite the fact that the Tutsis were the minority, and they really governed and they made the Tutsis a lot more powerful, the Belgians simply continued that ethnic divide of power, which undeniably contributed towards the 1990 Civil War and what would be the 1994 genocide that happened afterwards. Colonial power in coffee generally is is pretty ugly and disgusting. Uh, The British in Kenya and Tanzania, we we don't do as badly. Uh, Tanzania actually, interestingly, um, there is uh, some history of coffee growing there. They, the, the sort of the oral tradition tells of coffee coming from Ethiopia and being grown by the higher tribe there. Um, confusingly, this this coffee was actually robusta; it wasn't an arabica variety. Uh, but if you watch Aaron Davis's talk, and you really should watch Aaron Davis's talk, you'll see that uh, robusta was sort of indigenous to a variety of places in Africa. And what was weird is that that this tribe actually grew coffee, but they didn't grow it as a cash crop. So when the British rolled in and were like, "Hey," His simple Bourbon instead, grow this for us for money. They weren't remotely interested, despite the fact that they've been growing coffee for a very long time. And the other tribes, in fact, were much more interested in growing coffee. But we, we end up in a situation where so much of what we love about African coffee stems from, in some ways, the varieties. SL28 is a derivative, ultimately, of Roubon via the Tanganyika drought-resistant strains that happened in Tanzania back then. You know, the reason we love a great deal of uh, Rwandan coffees is or or even uh, Burundi coffees is their Bourbon variety. We love that, we prize that. And uh, it's there because, it's only there really because colonial powers forced people to grow it there. And I came into coffee at a difficult time, I suppose, or a great time in some ways, where I came into it at a time when quality fixed everything. Quality was the answer to every question. Uh, And as long as we rewarded quality and we spent more on quality, everything was gonna be fine. And fair trade really made no sense. You know what I mean? Like, I can't get good coffee through fair trade. It's, you know, it's pointless. It's not interesting. It was dismissed by most of us who didn't really understand that cooperatives gave power to people that traditionally didn't have power, gave them organization, um, gave them a voice. And so, you know, I would be like, oh, it's amazing, Rwanda, tons tons of Bourbon. I feel really good about that. And then the more I dig into the history of coffee, the more awkward that good feeling gets. And for me, it's not to kind of turn on the guilt. That's not really the point. I don't think anyone in this room is complicit in any of the negative acts that have happened in coffee in Africa and South America and Central America. But I do believe that we owe ourselves some awareness of the history of coffee and why it is what it is and why it is where it is and why it is exactly what it is that is grown there. Um, And Bourbon in a fine sort of way is a kind of great variety example of that. So that is me. Thank you so much. If you have questions, I will uh, attempt to dodge them. Please, a huge round of applause for Mr. James Hoffman.
1: I didn't expect the whiskey talk, I must admit. I'm sure Colin will be quite surprised too.
0: Uh, I was kind of hopeful when I started to dig into it. I was like, is is bourbon named after the same thing? and kind of was I thought
1: that was cool yeah it is very cool I didn't I didn't know that I feel educated today and I, I thought must. I knew lots about whiskey so Where are yeah, this man knew nothing about whiskey when I you found him still he was don't. a waitress in a cocktail bar um, right um, do we have any questions for James does anybody uh, like to ask something this is your one opportunity I am coming I'm gonna be running again Da-da-da-da-da. and I'm gonna go up this one so, where were the hands again, please? Oh, one of our speakers in, uh, in a few moments.
0: So, did you never think about the fact that bourbon, whiskey and bourbon coffee is connected? I don't think anything. Like, right from when you first started? Well, to... No, not really. I don't think any of us really did. Like everyone I've told this to is completely surprised by this fact, and we presume there was a vague connection, but it wasn't such a direct correlation as them being named after exactly the same thing. And in fact, I was kind of surprised that I'd never really heard of the House of Bourbon as a as a sort of name, as a sort of French dynasty of power. As, and anyone else? I don't know if there's any French history people you'd heard of the House of Bourbon. Yeah, one. It's okay, so I I feel, you know, smarter than me. It's okay. Uh, um, But yeah, it was just, I just wanted to see how direct the correlation was because the amount of times that you get the her-her bourbon response when you try and explain that it's a bourbon variety was like, well, it would be nice to have a decent answer to this question.
1: You do know that everybody's going to use that now, though. So this is it. It's out there. You've given it away.
0: That was the point of the talk, (laughs) So give it away.
1: Here we go. One more question. Hi, James. Hey. Hey. Given that the bowan variety was forced upon a lot of these uh, growing areas, yep. do you think there's a sense of almost lost opportunity for native varieties that we don't have? And are they starting to come back in any way in new wild varieties being found?
0: Uh, there, outside of Ethiopia, there's not a lot of... As far as I understand it, there's not a lot of wild coffee. So essentially, coffee is in no way particularly indigenous to much of Tanzania, certainly not any Arabica varieties or particularly interesting species uh, therein. Um, it, it was more, I mean, you, if you go and watch Aaron Davis's talk, as you really should, kind of coffee really came from Sudan, most likely. It's where the, the likely cross between Arabica and um, Eugenoides, brain goes there, which is the other species that crossed with Robusta to create Arabica. So this is it was confusing and a, and a pop brain for me, that Robusta is the parent of Arabica, the, the one that we consider the defective cousin, is in fact the father. Um, but uh, it lightly crossed in an interesting way in southern Sudan and then spread into Ethiopia where it really flourished. And it really took root in Ethiopia, but it probably isn't from Ethiopia, which is something probably I'll get into trouble if I told some Ethiopian people that. Um, But um, in terms of the rest of Africa, yeah, there was some indigenous Arabica, but certainly not as far south as Tanzania, Burundi, uh, Kenya.
1: I mean, I think also Bourbon has given us those natural, uh, the natural mutations of things like uh, pacas, you know, that we've seen kind of develop and um, I, I think, it kind of has changed a little bit to suit its environment. Um, any more questions? Have we got... I saw a hand over there. Is that gone now? No?
0: Yeah. Okay. Cool. Got cool. Right. Well, um, I think...